Would you like data with that? Apple Goes Plus, Parental Oversharing, Shadowhammer, and we automate all the things on tonight's Iron Sysadmin Podcast, Episode 58. Alright folks, welcome to tonight's episode of the Iron Sysadmin Podcast. I'm your host Nate, and I'm joined by two of our co-hosts, further proving that we cannot all be on the same show at the same time, correct? I've got Charles with me. Say hi Charles. Hi Charles. And Jason, who's still muted. Well yeah, because, you know, it's rude to unmute and make noise. Yeah, you don't want to make noise over the intro music, right? <clears throat> yes. You have to forgive me, Correct. folks. I have a touch of a cold, so if my voice gives out or something, we'll just have to depend on these two idiots to, or sorry, these two fine gentlemen to <laughs> to carry on the Thank show you. without me. <laughs> well, we can certainly flood the air with noise. I mean, that's no problem. Well, yeah, I mean, that's pretty much what we do, right? Hmm. Or at least flood the data with noise. Wow, that was okay. What? Yeah, I was trying to bring up the uh, YouTube link in Twitter, which opened it up and played it and then opened up another window with YouTube in it and played that. So you just echoed three times in a row. Yes. Further filling the data with noise. Yes. That's a, that's a feature that was, that was supposed to happen. Just be yeah. happy that that didn't feed back into the podcast because then you would have heard like an infinite echo that went on forever. Right. That's how that works. Yeah. Something like that. Something like that. All right, so I guess we'll move straight on into the news then, huh? We got some interesting news from Wired that food giant McDonald's has recently purchased a uh, a big data firm. Let me find the name here. Dynamic Yield, which is apparently uh, Indian-based from Tel Aviv. Is that India? Uh, that's Israel. Israel, I'm sorry. I knew that when I read it before. I got the eye right. Good job. <laughs> not not quite close enough. <laughs> oh, I, I uh, points for effort. I guess. Uh, yeah, yeah. I guess. It's a foreign country. Starts with an I. Uh, Ireland. I like starting with I. You could have confused it with. Um. <laughs> <laughs> so dynamic yield, according to Wired, is um, an AI platform which handles decision logic. Um, basically, like if you're Shopping for something on a, an online website or an offline website, I suppose, um, that uses this software. Uh, the, the thing that suggests other uh, products to you uh, could be Dynamic Yield. It's one of those things. It's one of those uh, those packages. And apparently McDonald's has purchased them for, let's see, over $300 million? Is that what that said? Yep. Yep. That's what it says here. Over $300 million. Um. So, I mean, why in the world would McDonald's want to buy an AI firm? Apparently, it's because they have this great idea that they could sell more products if it dynamically and intelligently suggests products to you. Uh, the, the news that I'm reading here from Wired and from a couple other articles that I read 
uh, regarding the subject is that the first place they intend to leverage this is on something like the McDonald's drive-thru. So you've, you've all been through a McDonald's drive-thru, I assume, or at least any fast food drive-thru. Uh, you pull up and there's, you know, advertisements there for things that the place sells. And generally, this, these are very static, except for maybe they change from breakfast to lunch or whatever. Um, what they're going to do with this first, according to the report, is they're going to make those signs dynamic. So uh, if it's like 98 degrees outside, it'll recommend ice cream. Um, if there's like an event in town, it'll recommend things that might be related to the event, I suppose. That's one of the examples they use in the article, though I can't imagine how McDonald's might have themed stuff like that. Um, but like their their shamrock shakes, for example, for uh, for St. Patrick's Day, you know, I'd imagine that that's that's the sort of thing where it's like, oh, it's St. Patrick's Day, start showing the shamrock shakes, that kind of thing. So um, interesting stuff. I don't know. You guys have any comments on uh, being dynamically offered fast food? So let me see if I understand this correctly. They spent three hundred plus million dollars on a company who wrote a machine learning algorithm to ask you if you would like fries with that. <laughs> <laughs> Seems that way. Oh, uh, I have to go write some Python. I'll be right back. Yeah, I don't. I don't fully understand why they had to buy Dynamic Yield to do this. Like the company. Um, it may just be a good my, investment. Maybe, yeah, that's maybe. possible. And and I'm betting. I'm betting that they are. It, it's it's going to go way beyond. Um, just the drive-through and and the ins, you know, oh yeah, inside. They'll yeah. tie it to your credit card, and then they will build a big profile about you know how much fat you eat and what kind of food you like, and they will sell that to the well, highest bidder. Why couldn't they do that as a dynamic yield customer? Is what I'm curious about. Um, they may have been able to, but licensing agreements. Yeah, I guess this this could be probably like, get a little weird there. This could be cheaper in the long run, I suppose. I yeah, could, I could too. I could pay Uber to drive me to work every day, or I could buy a car. Buying the car is probably a better bet in the long run because it'll cost me less. Because all I'm doing is putting fuel and maintenance into my vehicle instead of paying Uber to drive me an hour each way. But would you yeah, buy but you a car? Have to drive the car and but would you parking? buy a car from Uber? No, that's a good question. I definitely would not. Probably but. not. But I mean, that's sort of different. Uber's not a car manufacturer. Dynamic Yield is a software vendor. Right or a software creator, right? Yeah, it, and it could just be it, they wanted to ensure that there was a company that <clears throat> was tame in certain ways that would always provide them this capability. Yeah, it could be. You know, what if we start depending on dynamic yield and then dynamic yield goes belly up, right? Or we don't yeah. get enough say in how they're making their algorithms work, and we want better more say. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, so, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm betting. So there's a little bit of talk in here about this moving into the kitchen as well. Yeah. Um, I wonder if this is going to start identifying how, like, start start telling the the humans what to cook when, and you know, identify what needs to be rotated out. Could be, and, yeah, and make sure you have this but, the right pace. It's almost I breakfast could, rush. Start cooking the eggs. But I mean, yep. do you really need to be told that? Well, I can offer a little bit of insight i mean it's a bit dated i but i did spend a couple of summers um in a mcdonald's kitchen and having kind of having predictive metrics on 
meat preparation would actually be pretty cool because you know you run out of a certain kind of thing or you're running out of a certain kind of thing you make more yeah but the amount you make is not really based it you make another batch but i can tell you that a lot of food got thrown out because it was in the warmer we hit the expiration point and you know no jimmy you joke about this but managers would be you know checking pretty often that all right you know it's hit it's hit the limit it's got to go um so if we had a better sense of all right we are likely to sell this much more meat um over this range of time then you can be better prepared to meet uh no pun intended certain you know certain rushes now obviously there's the doomsday scenario where a bus pulls up that you weren't expecting but mcdonald's doomsday oh Oh, no we have to sell a lot of burgers if the AI is monitoring the traffic and see right. using the traffic cams, it can identify the bus and determine <laughs> what path it's going to take. Um, yeah. So, so the couple of kitchens that I worked in, um, I worked at McDonald's and Burger King when I was younger. Um, mm-hmm. There were probably one or two people that were relatively capable of laying out what type of uh, like how much food to, to be producing at any given time based on how long they've been there. But generally speaking, um, unless somebody was in charge of doing that, it was, it was hit or miss. Um, you yeah. either, you were either throwing food away or customers are getting pissed because you didn't have the food ready. So the, the thing like the, the bus scenario though, that sounds like it'd be hard to predict unless you're right. It's actually monitoring traffic, right? But maybe it is predictable. That's the thing. I mean, shifts were pretty, I doubt this has changed. Everybody's schedule is so variable and, you know, everybody's part time. So it's not like there's institutional knowledge about, um, oh, right. oh, Thursday afternoons tend to be this way. But the algorithm knows. I think what McDonald and McDonald's may be hoping that there's going to be certain patterns that arise in the data, just things that weren't really visible to the people on the ground. Yeah. Or not. Maybe it turns out it's totally random. Yeah, I guess I guess uh, you know some sort of overarching AI that monitors all of this stuff certainly um, could start to match those patterns, right? So, and Slack is doing that thing to me again, just like it did on the last show, where it just like reloads in the middle of the show and it makes things choppy. That's great. Hey, I was just going to mention that you were a little choppy there. Yeah, you yeah. broke up. You must have a squirrel <laughs> on the roof again. Must be a squirrel. No, no, it's tree branch. Go tree shoot branch. it. Totally tree branch. Uh, so anyway, yeah, so uh, McDonald's will start offering AI with your fries. So that's both scary and uh, and great. All right, then. Moving on to a CNET article that will undoubtedly try to play you a video. So be careful. All right, so this is mainly just um, Apple announced some stuff this week, and I thought we'd talk briefly about the stuff Apple announced, mainly because Apple TV Plus sounds kind of interesting if I um, if I understand it correctly. So um, the things that they've announced are a TV service called Apple TV Plus, which is like the worst named service ever, in my opinion. Um, just based on their history of uh, Apple TV devices, which this is not. This is a service. Weird. Um, I, I'm sure if we put our heads together, we can find other services that are ineptly named as well. Quickster. But there you go. Done. <laughs> <laughs> We're done. We got it. 
Uh, also, a subscription gaming service, which um, I guess is basically like the Apple App Store games all roped into one where you pay a subscription instead of paying per game. Do I have this right? Yeah, so so I actually watched the live stream, and oh, the, the rationale for this one is that um, so free games in the app store and any app store doesn't matter what platform you're on tend to do relatively well, you know, cause they're free and people jump all over them. Um, and they've noticed that the paid apps, despite some of them being absolutely incredible, um, don't do quite as well as a free game. And that what they're trying to do is say, if we set up a subscription to, um, uh, this thing called Apple arcade, and we start paying the various developers that join the Apple Arcade uh, program. We can take that money and split it across the developers, and I'm sure you know, generous chunk for themselves. Sure. Um, and give people the ability to play all of those different games, and sort of you know bring that up to so that they have as much um, visibility as the free games are getting these days. Well, I guarantee it would be more like um, you get paid when people play your game. No. That's that's possible. I uh, I don't know. I mean, it um, couldn't be. Th those details are still a little hidden. It uh, I I can't imagine just like I have a game, I get it on the Apple App Store, I start getting money because I'm part of this gaming service. Yeah, you're you're probably right. Like people have to actually play the game, otherwise I'm not. <laughs> yeah, but then the question is, you know, is it is it per play? Is it you know like there's there's a lot right. of unanswered questions. Right. And given that this isn't supposed to launch until. The fall, I believe. Oh, sure. Um, they may not have answers yet. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure they have something internally, but they're just not releasing yet. Right. Uh, the other thing is Apple News Plus, which didn't sound all that interesting to me, except it's another news service. Yeah, it's already... Apple News so, yeah. I, I saw an interesting um, note today, um, and I had actually forgotten about this. I sort of, when I was watching the, the live stream, um, it sort of jumped into my mind. So, do you remember um, Newsstand from years ago? Apple came out with Newsstand, which was all the magazines. Yeah, I mean, and you got the subscriptions through this this app called Newsstand. You have to remember uh, what I'm, they've done. I'm, I'm only recently an Apple user. I was always an Android yep. user until now, so this is all foreign to me. <laughs> so, so back in the day, they had Newsstand. Yeah, um, which was basically uh, mostly magazines. I think there were newspapers on there too. Um, and if you look at what they've done with news, uh, they've taken newsstand and stuck it in news it's it's identical i mean interesting sl slightly different interface but it's exactly the same product cool that's that's a great way to do things uh and then of course an apple credit card because you know why not i was i'm actually surprised it took apple this long to have their own line of credit it seems like every big hardware manufacturer has something that lets you charge you know to buy their hardware because it just it enables you to buy their hardware like Dell has yeah. something. Dell has got their own friggin' bank. Um, it looks like it sounds like Apple is working with Mastercard and what was the bank they named? Uh, it's Goldman Sachs. Goldman Sachs. Yeah. So, so well, <clears throat> Titanium Card, which is cool. Um, but the the thing that I like about the credit card piece is just sort of the interface that they have on giving you the ability to do all the calculations yourself and figure out minimum what you want to pay versus what it's going to cost over, over time. 
that's actually really nice. So did um, you, I heard rumbling somewhere that this credit service was going to be somehow privacy aware. Did you hear that as well, or am I making stuff up? So the privacy argument is that Apple themselves will never actually get a copy of your purchase history. Okay. It's all machine learning and stuff that's that's doing all the, the fancy stuff on it. The only, the only people or the only company that's going to have that um, that purchase history is Goldman Sachs, and they've they've promised they're trustworthy. Not to sell it. Totally. Oh yeah, yeah, totally trustworthy. Totally trustworthy. Um, so the the card has no fees at all, none apparently. So I'm not sure how that works when I'm you sure. don't pay it. There's got to be an interest fee. There's there's interest. Yeah, that's not considered a fee. Um, that's interest. So they don't know what the interest. They haven't announced what the interest rate is. That'll um, probably they're be, saying it's low. That'll probably depend on your credit score. It's usually, probably going to depend on credit score, goes. and it'll it'll probably be if they want to say lowest in the industry, they'll probably do like one or two percent lower than most most of the other. So, cars. are you saying no fees, even including penalties? No penalty fees at all. Yeah. So, like, if I don't pay my credit card bill, there's no fee. There's no late fee. If I go over the limit, I, there's no fee. Maybe there's no limit. Uh, it's Apple. Think, Buy all the stuff. <laughs> I think they're just gonna. I think once you hit the limit, you just hit the limit. Yeah. Well, right. But I mean, so but yeah. Right. It, it every over the limit. Every yes. credit card stops you when you hit your limit. But if you hit your limit and leave it there, and you get an interest fee, and you go over the limit, then they're like, "Oh, good. We can charge you more money. So you're more over the limit." Right. So they claim no fees. Uh, it remains to be seen what they're going to do about those wonderful people that don't pay their credit cards. I don't know if you can um, tell, but I just love credit cards. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so the the key with this one appears to be so you, you get the you can get the titanium card itself, but that's that's kind of a secondary thing. That's a if you can't use Apple Pay anywhere else, um, then you you have the titanium card to sort of fall back on. Um, yeah, everything about the card requires you to have an Apple device. And that's right. sort of the Surprise. that's sort of the lock in. Surprise. And you know, they may move to other platforms eventually, but um Apple they may not. Apple does a great job of not being cross platform. I'll say that as an Android user coming to Apple, they do a great job of like, this is the Apple ecosystem. You have to have Apple hardware to use it, with some exceptions. There's a handful of exceptions. Google was the opposite. Like, basically, when I got my iPhone, I had all this stuff in Google's ecosystem. I just installed all the Google apps, and I could still use my stuff, right? So, like, if I ever switch back, I'd be afraid to see what happens to anything that I depend on Apple for. It'll just be useless to me, I think. Which kind of kind of scary, but, uh, you know, whatever. So, I saved the best for last, and that's this Apple TV+. Plus. And that's because, the way I'm reading this article, and maybe you can correct me since you saw the the event... Um, is this a uh, a la carte TV service? Yes, this is an a la carte TV service. However, like the thing we've uh, all been asking for since we started cutting the cord. Yeah, um, it remains to be seen. So we we say a la carte. Um, I don't know channel wise how this is going to work. Um, it's definitely interesting. It sounds like they have a lot of interesting exclusives that are coming out, but there's there's a lot of information that's not out there yet. Um. And to your previous point about Apple being Apple only, this is where they're actually making a break from that. Yes. Because they're releasing the Apple TV app, if I understand it, for 
a bunch of other smart TV devices. Yep. Uh, Samsung, LG, Sony. Smart TVs, Roku, and Amazon Fire TV. Yep. And then Roku and, and the Fire TV are getting the app as well. Yeah. So, well, I mean, if you're going to have a successful television service, you're going to have to spread beyond. I, Apple does right. seem to get that. If you're going to offer a service, like iTunes, for example. iTunes is cross-platform because that's they sell stuff through iTunes, right? So if they're going to sell stuff, they have to be broad enough that anybody can buy stuff. And that's that seems to be where they draw that line. If it's like, I want to be able to store my pictures on iCloud, it's, okay, you need an Apple device. So, where Google is the opposite. Google's just like, okay, if you want to pay us $2 a month for your 100 gig of storage... You can store all the pictures you want on here. I don't care if you're doing it with, with a tin can and a string. Yeah, so I think you're going to see this starting to change a little bit because so Google is primarily a services company. Yeah, Google doesn't make money on hardware. Oh, yeah, yeah. Android they, has always been a gateway to get people right. into the Google ecosystem, and then the, right. Google ego, the Google ecosystem is the way they make money. Right, so their, their entire aim in life is to, to spread as far and wide as they can and yeah. work on everything. Yeah. Because that means that you get on their platform. Right. And as we all know, even when it's free, you're paying. So yeah, Apple, on the other hand, has been primarily hardware. You're paying with people collecting data on you. <laughs> right. So Apple is primarily hardware. So they're looking right. for it's a different model. I, people I, to, stay, I get that. to stay in their ecosystem. Um, now, with, with services, that changes a little bit because now they're going to want to spread those services wider. Um I think what you'll find is that the the experience is always going to be top notch on an Apple device, whereas it may suffer a little on other devices. I mean, yeah. look at look at iTunes on on Windows, for example. Like, yeah. it's just horrible. I mean, it's functional. <laughs> it's right, it's functional. That's about it. I mean, <laughs> good enough. When you're talking about something that you you know software that you're going to be using all the time, it's functional is not really what you're looking for. You're looking for like, oh, I, I really yeah. enjoy using this. Yeah, right. So yeah, those are the cool new things coming from Apple. I, I'm I'm really interested to see where TV Plus goes because if it truly is, there was something in this Wired article, and I'm I'm just sort of skimming through to see if I could find it that made me that made it sound like this was going to be roll your own channel package, and that is really interesting to me because there's certain channels I I would love to pay money to be able to watch, and uh, currently with the way. With the way streaming services have evolved to basically emulate the cable model, uh, well, I can't do what I was hoping to be able to do when I stopped subscribing to cable. And now, instead of subscribing to cable, I'm subscribing to, you know, digital cable provider X. Uh, this is the best right. word I can come up with. Like Sling, for example. Sling, you pay a flat price for a group of channels. Like 90% of them I might not want to watch, but i got to pay for them so I can get the 10% that I do. And that was the exact problem with cable, and that was why one of the reasons why I cut the cord. Um, also, because they're a bunch of money grubbing bastards and uh, overpriced services. But slowly but yeah. surely, streaming providers are doing the same thing. I mean, Netflix is an exception. Um, Hulu's kind of an exception, except that they're rebroadcasting other people's content. But like, um, Sling. And they have commercials, so they suck. Right, so Sling and uh, DirecTV Now and FUBU or FUBO, whatever it's called, they're all the same basic model as the cable TV providers were, or are, where you pay, right. you pay X for cable package Y, 
and you pay Z for cable package A, and you get these subset of channels. And if you want some weird combination of the channels on both of those things, you got to pay for the higher package. There's no like pick and choose because, what you want. Because on the back end of those, they are cable. Or, right. Or they're either cable or satellite. Right. So, I mean, I don't know that Sling is. Sling is, um, I don't know if Sling was ever based in a, a, a physical space. It was always digital. Maybe I'm wrong, but Sling uses that model. I'm very disappointed in it. Anyway, I think we've talked enough about Apple. We can move on. So, so uh, Sling is owned by Dish, so... That explains it. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> you can't escape them. Cannot nope. escape them. Well, you can. You, you just cut the cord and don't have local TV channels. That's what I do. Which which I've lived without for, yeah. for years. The only, thing I I miss is, the only thing I miss is, is football. Right, which is why I have YouTube TV, because I get football. But YouTube TV, isn't that the same boat? It is. It's just I like, would, you know. Yeah, but it's cheaper, and I can cast it, and I can watch it anywhere. Right. Almost anywhere. Almost anywhere. Except Occasionally on my... you hit weird blackout rules. But... <laughs> Except on my old Roku. I have, like, the first Roku that I bought, I still have on a TV that I don't use often, and apparently it's old enough that there's certain apps that don't work now. YouTube TV is one of them. That's a you problem. Yeah, I get know. I'm just, get a I'm Chromecast. Just, just saying. Just saying. I have I actually have an old Chromecast too, which still works surprisingly. Everything I've thrown at it still works. <laughs> that was like only if the, you're on the right network. Only if you're on the right oh, network. Yes. Oh right. If you're not <laughs> if you're not on a network that segregates your your users from their devices, then yes. <laughs> <laughs> what kind of monster would design a network? What like monster that? would do that? <laughs> Somebody who wants a secure network. Uh, no such like, thing. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, let's let's move along. Um. Fast Company reports, well, is really just sort of an editorial piece, I guess is what you call this, right? Um, yeah, this is an editorial. Yeah. So uh, the title is, I'm 14 and I quit social media after discovering what was posted about me, which is a very vague title. Well, not vague, but it's very, like, leading, right? Um, basically. Clickbaity, maybe? Yeah, right. This is a, this is a story or a editorial um, about a 13-year-old girl i think they don't give her name do they i don't know if they no do. she's not under, that it matters. well her name is there because she's the author but oh she wrote the whole thing okay yeah. i thought it was somebody yeah. that i'm horrible at this guys i'm sorry uh israel <laughs> you're not gonna right. let that one down we're already getting picked on yeah i saw man i'm sorry i'm really sorry anyway there's i got so much going on at this end that you you should be happy that I can actually speak coherently. Sometimes I can't. <laughs> as, as witnessed, as witnessed at the beginning of this show. <laughs> okay, so anyway, um, this girl or young woman, uh, thirteen years old. Her parents decided that's the cutoff age where their kids are allowed to start using social media. So she signs up for Facebook and Twitter. Why she chose those two, I don't know. I guess it's just like what other people were using in her household. And she finds that her older sister and her mother had already posted a bunch of stuff about her and her life uh, without her consent, which is not that unreasonable, to, to me anyway, as a parent, right? Uh, yeah, I, it, unreasonable. It's not that uncommon. Not that so. uncommon, right. Well, no, it's a, it's a thing that, from my perspective, 
uh, didn't really enter my mind until I read this article, which is why I've taken this article and I've recommended it to a bunch of other parents that I know, because it may not have entered their mind either, right? So right. even me as a technology person, never it never really occurred to me like that my daughters might not like the fact that I'm sharing information about them with friends and family, right? Now, right. my social presence is locked down to the point where folks can't just sort of browse in and see pictures of my kids and whatnot. You have to, you have, to have friended me or linked with me in, in some way on that particular social network. It's just the way I've always done it. So it's not like it's public information, but it is information that I've shared with a relatively large network of friends, quote-unquote, um, on these various social networks. Um, not so much on Twitter, because Twitter's a lot more public and open. I don't really share a lot about my family and my kids on there. Uh, but Facebook, because I'm able to lock down my profile in the ways that I have, you know, it's it never really crosses my mind that I shouldn't share a picture of my daughter doing something funny or whatever. Uh, but anyway, the, the, the point is that this girl signs up for Facebook or, or and or Twitter, notices all this stuff, and she's, like, appalled. And she has a conversation with her older sister and her mother, and they agree that they won't post any more pictures of her. Cool. Um, and she goes on to talk about how she's actually... Her school actually has this company come in, which I'm trying to find the name of. Should have wrote this down. They have this this organization come in, and basically they're there to teach young people about the the pitfalls. It's called it's called okay to say. Sorry, you broke up. What was that again? It's called okay to say. Okay to say. That's it. I'm I'm thinking to my I'm like I remember this was like a short form with a number in it, and I'm just skimming this thing to try to find it. Anyway, uh, they come into schools and they teach they try to teach kids about how to responsibly share on social media. And about the sort of things that kids might not be thinking about, like the fact that this stuff is generally forever. And the fact that when you're 18 or out of college and you're looking for jobs, uh, it's not impossible for an employer to go back and look at your social media history and see what you're all about. So sharing stuff that might be, you know, like how you got high last weekend might be detrimental to your job perspectives, right? So uh, she took that and combined with her, her bad experience with, you know, the day she signed up, and she basically decided, I don't want any part of this. Uh, I think in her words in the article, it was that she decided she wasn't ready for this, and she actually closed her accounts out. Didn't delete them. She says that she made them dormant. So um, I don't know. I just thought this was an interesting read. I thought it was uh, a interesting perspective from uh, the new generation of kids that are coming into a world where social media is already rampant. Um, I know you guys are probably in the same boat, but when I was this age, we had BBSs or we had, you know, some minor version of, of what could be called a social network by today's standards, but it wasn't nearly as permanent as today's social networks are. And your parents weren't on it. Exactly. Yeah. Well, my my, My parents was. missed that entire boat. I mean, they're they will never have social media accounts. It's just passed them by. Right, right. So, um, my dad was as into technology as I am. So he he sort of he knew of BBSs and what they were and how to interact with them. He also knew that knew that they could be dangerous places, especially for kids. 
So um, I learned all that early on, before I was ever even online. Um, I just had the benefit of that, you know, because my dad knew, right? And I intend to teach my kids the same stuff before they hit the internet. Um, but, um, but yeah, there's certainly a lot of a lot of people our age that their parents are like computers. I don't want to touch them because they're newfangled weird things, right? They just didn't grow up with them. Whereas my kids will never know a world where there wasn't a computer at, not even a computer at hand, but a computer in your hand, in your pocket, <laughs> with you everywhere you went, right? <laughs> so, yeah, I just thought it was an interesting article. If you're a parent, I suggest you read this thing, um, or at least skim over it, <laughs> or at least yeah, listen a, to this show. <laughs> and we have a coworker who does occasionally talk about his kids and his social media accounts, but he uses pseudonyms for them. Yeah. Which, you know, is, I think, and generally, you know, I think sometimes tweets pictures, I think, but it seems like when he does, it's like with, with their knowledge and consent. So, yeah, you know, I, interesting way of handling it. I have out of habit, uh, I, I call each of my kids by a nickname. And that's, that's usually yeah. what I use when I post about them online. Friends and family know who I'm talking about. Um, but, I don't feel like that would be too difficult to tie together later. You know what I mean? Like, sure, some random stranger won't be able to go like, oh, that's that's his daughter's named X and that's his daughter named Y. But they'll be able to separate the posts. You know, this is about that child and this is about that child. And then all they have to do is do some very minor digging, probably, to figure out my kids' names. And they can match that up. You know, so that's... It's, that's nice, but it's not a protection. I don't, I don't feel like it is anyway. And, and the idea of my kids consenting to them having their pictures online, it just didn't occur to me, right? Because your kids are... Because, like, and this is going to sound weird, because you created them and you cared for them like a potted plant for so long, they almost feel like a thing that is yours, and to, to, to some extent, within the boundaries of reason and morality, you can sort of do with them what you please. This is probably coming across really strange, but I, I think, I hope you get what I'm saying, right? Like, it never occurred to me that posting a picture of my daughter doing something funny would be a something that my daughter later might come back to me and say, why the hell did you post that? You didn't have my permission. But it makes sense now that I've read it, <laughs> is my point. Yeah, so th I mean, this is a this is a definitely a twenty first century uh, conundrum. Um, yeah, and absolutely. I, I've seen this come up on on a number of different podcasts and news news uh, right. sites right. about this exact thing. So, so, so like, it's, it's when I was a kid, my mom took a billion pictures, but they were physical and they were in photo albums, right? So yeah, she can pull out the photo albums and look at all these funny, stupid things that I did as a kid, but they're not on the internet; they're not accessible to the world. Right, and I think that's the big difference. I just avoided putting anything about my kids out there. Yeah, um, I when I read was, this, it that wasn't. Go ahead. That that wasn't really because of their. I mean, it was their privacy more so in that I don't want creepers, as opposed to thinking about what they would say years later when they were old enough. Right. It's it was about their privacy from a protective stance, not from a right. consent stance right correct so yeah i guess <coughs> excuse me part of me is like 
consent to that level almost sounds like a whiny complaint, but part of me understands it, right? Part of me gets it, like, parents have taken embarrassing pictures of their kids for as long as there have been cameras. <laughs> you know what I mean? They just haven't shared them on the internet. So, anyway, I think that's that's enough there. So, uh, the next two articles are basically follow-ons for each other about, um, well, I don't know, you want to go ahead and take this, Jason? I think you added these to the notes. Yes, yes. So, Shadowhammer. Um, Shadowhammer. You have to say it like that. <laughs> no, no, I'm good. Um, Shadowhammer. Thanks. <laughs> thanks. I'll, I'll just point to you whenever I need to say it, and then... You can just you can do this. You can do the word. Um, so apparently for about half a year, um, Asus was pushing an update to uh, all of the computers that got updates from Asus. Uh, that was malware. Um, brilliant. This is so, like I, I was talking to Charles before you joined the, the show earlier when I was reading over this. This is like the holy grail for someone who wants to distribute malware. Yeah, so it this is it was a uh, um, uh, supply chain attack is what they're calling them. Yeah, um, and basically they they took over ASUS's update server and put their own software on there that needed to be pushed out. And ASUS said, "Oh look, new software to push out to everybody. Let me sign it and push yeah. it out, and it's authentic." That was um, the awesome part that they actually got it to sign it. Yep. Yep. Um, That's awesome. This is, that's also an attack that you can do on the blockchain stuff, by the way. Uh, so, <laughs> so um, the interesting, the more interesting piece of this, um, so they know that this has happened. They've stopped it. The follow-on uh, uh, news article basically uh, is a, uh, a note that they released a fix to, I guess, remove the uh, Shadowhammer backdoor. Um, Shadow too little, her. too late, I guess. Um, anyway, <laughs> killing me. Um, <laughs> anyway, the uh, the more interesting part of this entire thing is that they estimate that this made it onto somewhere north of what was it, half a million machines? Uh, remember where it is. Um, anyway. Yeah, yeah, half a million half Windows a million. machines. Kaspersky estimates about um, half a million. But Windows machines. The attackers only used about six hundred of those systems. They were targeting them by MAC address. Hmm. Um, hmm. And there's a lot of there's a lot of chatter out there and and sort of guesswork about why they're doing this. Um, obviously, if you know the MAC address of a computer, um, you probably know who owns that computer. Theoretically. And if you're able to get that in advance and target that particular MAC address, maybe that would give you a certain advantage in a, you know, for something specific. Um, they or haven't it, really released. It who... could be that we're reading too far into that, and it's simply that they hadn't fully leveraged the foothold they had. It's possible, um, but but the the malware was designed specifically to search for MAC addresses, certain MAC addresses. Oh, so, okay. Actual individual MAC addresses or just um, a hardware specific like manufacturer prefix? Or I like don't know how deep it goes. Um, you, would, you would think that that manufacturer prefix would be related specifically to Asus. Yeah, yeah. So, mm -hmm. so Because it is an Asus right, update point. server. 
Yeah, yeah. So, so your your first six is going to be just an ASUS uh, OUI. Yeah. I mean, so so the rest of this wasn't important. If you're talking but, about Ethernet Mac, though, it may not be ASUS. It could be like Intel or you know whatever Ethernet board chipset you've got. True, but it's going to be the MAC address on the system. So it's still going to be. It's not something. That, well, it's not something that you tip the typical person changes. Yeah. Um, yeah. So. Uh, Space Rogue, um, you know, so there's there's a lot of different people talking about this. And Space Rogue, who was one of the guys who um, testified in front of Congress uh, years and years and years ago, mm-hmm. um, he was part of uh, the Loft group. Um, anyway, his his comment was basically that um, it's not actually that hard uh, to get this information because it's every or most, and you guys are familiar with this because uh, you've used uh, Dell as a um, for the college, um, they'll give you a manifest of the MAC addresses in advance of what systems are coming so yeah. that you can put them into, you know, here's a CSV file of all the MAC addresses so that you can then uh, update your 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 management systems. And when they come online, it just happens. It Poof. just works. Yeah. So if the attackers were able to get deep enough into ASUS to infect their update system, mm-hmm. I don't think it's that far fetched for them to have gotten to the point where they can see the list of MAC addresses and who they went to. Could be. And they were clearly after something specific. Right. Um, they just, uh, to my knowledge, they haven't released any information about who owned the Mac owned those particular systems. So and, it's not, and they may you know, know, you know, and gadget says it's not clear why they focus on that subset of machines, but right. I'm sure gadget has no idea who owns them. Right. So, well, it's it's not clear is a very safe way of saying this seems suspicious, but we can't speculate until we have more information. Right. So it could be that these are machines that are that were distributed to government employees. Right. Or to specific, uh, or, you know, or say banks or different, you know, industries, banks or Bitcoin exchanges. You know, right. <clears throat> um. So anyway, but it's fixed now. Asus totally fixed it. Totally and everything's fixed. everything's right with the world again. Everything's and it's all rainbows and ponies. Everything is fine now. It's fixed. No damage. Only six hundred what, six hundred thousand users? <laughs> Isn't that what it's or six hundred users? Whatever. Yeah, only only six hundred were targeted. Only half a million got yeah. it. Right. And you know, I'm sure they're all patched now. In the in the grand scheme <laughs> of things, half a million isn't that big of a number. No, but it's a lot. Dep- I mean, don't get me wrong. Depends who half a million it is. Yeah, right. It depends on who that half million is and who the six hundred were. Right. And it depends on what they're doing with them. You've got half a million infected machines now. That's a that's a fairly sizable botnet. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. All right. Is that all the news then? That is. Or did you want to thoroughly cover how they fixed it? Uh, nah. not a whole lot of information <laughs> other than they we put the fixed it on their Yay. server and pushed it. Cool. All right, then. Off we go. All right. The news is done. Now we can speak freely. (laughs) Is this where I complain about talking about all the Apple products? Oh, wait, are we still live? Crap. No, we're totally live. 
<laughs> hey, look, look, if you had some cool Android announcement, you certainly could have added it to the show notes. <laughs> I'm just hey, glad my quiet. phone turns on. Yeah, quiet, we, you. You're in the we, minority now. We cover we cover plenty of Google and Android news. Yeah, I, I still like the platform. I just was really frustrated with their devices and gave up, <laughs> essentially. <laughs> gave in to the mass. Uh, so, I don't know that we got anything serious for announcements here. Uh, just a quick reminder that you guys can support the show via Patreon if you feel uh, inclined to do so. Patreon.com slash Iron Otherwise, um, I don't know what else we got. Oh, we got... Um, DEFCON meetup is coming up next week, right? DEFCON 610? Yep. So uh, BloomCon is Saturday. Um, actually, I think it's might be Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Saturday, Sunday. There's some there's some BloomCon going on this weekend uh, at Bloomsburg University. Um, okay. The DC 610 meetup is next Wednesday. Um, yep. Uh, and, and for and those the... of you... Go ahead. Sorry, for those of you who went to Whopper, the Whopper Summit, um, the planning for the next Whopper Summit has already started. So we're we're working on making it bigger and better and badder for next year. Cool. Uh, the uh, Lehigh Valley AWS Users Group is also meeting the week after next. So what's the date here? So the third is DEFCON 610. The 10th should be the Lehigh Valley AWS users group meetup that uh, my coworker runs. So, Did you make it to the first one? I made it to the first one. Uh, I haven't made so? it to... Uh, so he he does that on the same night that we do the podcast. So I don't know. Plus, two meetups in a month is tougher to get past the family. So, <laughs> well, how, how was the first one, though? Uh, it wasn't bad. He had a pretty good turnout. Um, a uh, the one of the guys who runs the uh, Red Hat Accelerators group that I'm a member of. He lives uh, nearby, and he made it out, so that was fun. Um, not in an official Red Hat capacity, but just in a he came out to sort of help, you know, answer questions and whatnot about. He's a he's he's a Tam for Red Hat. He does actually work for Red Hat, so. Um, you know, to, to sort of throw in the Red Hat flair on AWS. And I, I think he made it to the second one as well. So uh, he may be a regular uh, coming out to that. I invited him to DEF CON 610 too, but he didn't make it last month. Um, but maybe he will in the future. I don't know. So cool. yeah, it wasn't bad. Well. Uh, there, there wasn't a whole lot in the way of like content or whatever at the first meetup. It was more or less like, hey, we've got a meetup. Uh, let's meet some people. Let's figure out where we want this to go. And uh, I think he did a pretty good job of trying to organize that and and get some feedback as to what the people who made it there uh, want to see out of the meetup. So uh, where it's going to go from there, I don't know. Maybe maybe we could, after he's established and whatnot, maybe we'll have him come on the show one night and he can talk about it a little bit, you know, just to sort of spread the news Yeah, if anybody's interested. Sounds like fun. Yeah. All right, so we'll try to get, I guess we can get a link for BloomCon, a link for both the meetups that we talked about, and we'll add them to the show notes then before I publish them. So anybody can look those up if they want to. All right, in the way of reviews, uh, we got one guy uh, hit us up on Twitter. He also gave us a a suggestion for something to chat about, which is what we'll be chatting about tonight. Um, His name published on Twitter is Rob Weaver. Um, he 
appears to be European in descent, just based on the way he talks. <laughs> uh, so anyway, he says, uh, great show this week regarding change control. Uh, gave, gave him lots of ideas. Uh, he says, keep up the good work. And he listens to us chaps, is what I meant by the, <laughs> maybe I'm stereotyping, on Podkicker, which I've never heard of, but it's apparently an app for Android, which he's able to listen to us on, which is awesome, because... I never registered us with Podkicker, so they must consume one of the other services we publish through. <laughs> so that's cool. Uh, thank you, Rob, for the uh, the feedback, and it's very very helpful. All right, I'm su I'm surprised you haven't heard of it. It's let's see, Podkicker is one of the most popular podcast managers for Android. Yeah, which is exactly what everyone says about their podcast manager app. It says <laughs> it right in their description. Right in their own description. Yeah, I mean, it seems pretty legit. I was a I was a Beyond Pod user when I was on Android, which I do miss. I liked that uh, that app, um, but I think they made the same claim. One of the best or one of the most popular is a pretty broad thing. I use Podcast Republic. Let me see what they say. <laughs> just a minute here. These uh, guys have eighty, uh, just short of eighty five hundred reviews. So you know. Oh, good, good. Uh, where's the description? Now Charles, I don't know. I ended up on the Google Play Store because yeah. this is this is as close to Google devices I get, <laughs> and, and it burned a lot. So I, I uh, it is a top quality podcast app on Android. Top quality, top quality. <clears throat> and they have like uh, they had a bunch of reviews. I don't. Uh, they have seventy three thousand reviews. Seventy three thousand. That's awesome. Yeah. Now, now I have yeah. to look up Beyond Pod. Rated four stars. Awesome. That I don't know. Weird. I, down, I download my podcast and I listen to them. You closed the wrong tab again, didn't you, Jason? No, I was. I wasn't even in Safari. It was just, hey man, computering it is hard. Computering it is, is hard. hard. He at least knows which country Tel Aviv is in, so he's got that going. He's got that going for him. Yeah, it's in uh, South Africa, right? It's uh, in Ireland. Uh, I'm telling no. you, <laughs> it's in Ireland. <laughs> yeah, Tel Aviv, Iowa, hey, Iowa. It's in Iowa. <laughs> I just realized Iron System and also starts with I. Yeah. Are you confused about where this podcast is based? <laughs> yeah, totally. Where are we at? <laughs> Indianapolis. Indianapolis. Ooh. Now we're Indianapolis. now we're moving from countries to states to cities. Indianapolis is a city, right? <laughs> See, it starts Iron System. It starts with an I, so it's an Apple product. Oh, right, totally. Ooh. Except that it's not. But you can find it on iTunes. Ah. So anyway. All right. Uh, you guys got anything cool going on? You want to chat about any neat projects? Any uh, fun things to chat about? Yeah, so apparently Rob is in our our YouTube thing right now. He says oh, he's awesome. from Wales. Wales in the U Wales in the UK. See, good. Hi, Rob. He's been using Safe. Podkicker for years. Thank you. You just have to keep your eye on the thirty-two different ways that people can contact us. 
Yeah, right, right. Is there anybody in the Slack? How about how about Twitter? Let me check Twitter. <laughs> ah, anyway. Uh. So I don't have anything terribly interesting going on except that I've been hammering my head off the wall trying to configure a Cisco ASA to uh, use at home. It's been apparently it's been too long since I had to manage a Cisco firewall, and um, it's not coming back to me quickly. <laughs> Why? So I was able a, to. I was able is to get this it one of those set up. I have it. I'm just going to use it. Well, no. Okay. So currently, I don't have. Right. So yes, I have it. I'm going to use it. Um, I don't have like a standard router anymore. I have a. Google Wi-Fi um, adapter, which I'm currently using as my router, right? Which I don't love. I don't love having that connected directly to the internet. I'd rather have it protected by something else that is meant to firewall, right? I had the ASA sitting here. I figure, why the hell? I'll use it. That works. Sure. Okay. The fact that you had to ask me that makes me think that you don't agree with that. <laughs> I, it seems a little heavy for it is heavy for home. It is. Back back when you were hosting things there it was different. Yeah, well that's sure. that's why I had it, but I never put it into production. So now that I'm not like running services out of my house anymore, I figured I have all the 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 availability in the world to take things up and down so I can fiddle with this thing. So I decided that I would. Uh, so I, I've I, I got it set up so that I can get from, you know, like, I have my wireless connected to one port, and I have my wired stuff connected to another, and I have, like, a home lab connected to another port. Um, I've got that mostly working. The thing that I can't, for the life of me, get to work is, so I have a Plex server, and in order for that to work properly, I have to forward an inbound port. And I cannot get the stupid ASA to do an inbound NAT forward. Not you know port forward. It's frustrating. Like every piece of crap residential router can do. This. Yes, that's my point. <laughs> it is. Oh, the ASA can definitely do it. Oh yes, you just need to know the black magic commands the, to. The ASA it. can yeah, do it. I might have a nickel in my pocket here, so you can get a real router. It is. It, it is a real firewall, and that's the problem. It's a real <laughs> firewall with real complicated configuration. Here, I found I found eleven cents on. I found 11 cents on the ground today when I was walking to and from work. You can have it. Get a better router. I can probably just go buy like a Linksys for 11 cents, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, so I, I bristle a little because you have the firewall connected directly to the interwebs, which hurts me a lot. So, well, what else would you connect directly to the world? I always have a router in front Isn't of things. That, well, that's all. So, so you, you complained that my ASA was a little heavy. Now you want me to put a router in front of it. <laughs> No, no, I, I, no, I don't. I, just, I actually, honestly, was surprised you didn't throw like a. Oh, what was that crazy Linux distro you were using that that terminated VPN? I could do that. the 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 thing I'm trying to do is sort of, um, I don't know, embedify my my devices such that I'm not depending on a VM or a full on computer you know, a full-on tower or whatever to get me to the internet. What I want is just a device that is meant to do a thing, like a router or like a firewall, that is just like, that's its job, that's what it does, right? 
Um, no, it makes sense. So that's that's what I'm trying to do. Yes, I could go back to... So what I used to have was the Cisco router, the ancient Cisco router, and then I had uh, a small hypervisor behind it, which I then ran a VM, which was my router, right? And this is all very complicated and very easy to fail, and it's not something that if in the middle of the day something stops working and I'm at work and my wife calls me to say, why is the internet down? I can't just say, okay, go downstairs and unplug the white flashing box. <laughs> that didn't work. Unplug the green flashing box. <laughs> right? So anyway, that's that's kind of my goal at the moment. So um, so our uh, our long lost uh, co-host may be able to help you. He's more he's more up to date with the current uh, ASA stuff. Oh, good. I I have a friend who lives just across town um, who actually gave me the ASA. Uh, he he offered to come help me, but we just haven't been able to find out find a time for him to come over and help me out. So why are you chuckling? <laughs> because he gave me the ASA because he didn't want it. Is that what it is? <laughs> Okay. Maybe. Maybe. Sorry, I saw Charles chuckling. I thought he was chuckling at me. I was chuckling at you. Okay. Anyway. I didn't give you the ASA. No, no, you didn't. So uh, maybe maybe it will turn out that the right answer is to just go buy a uh, you know, Walmart special home router and do that. Or maybe um, I've got a coworker who's running a PFSense embedded device. That might be a good, a good in-between, right? all the configurability of a PFSense box, which is unfortunately BSD-based. I hate BSD. So I, I uh, this is going to sound really odd coming from me, but um, uh, the Netgear Orbi is is absolutely amazing and works really well. So yeah, does well, all your wireless and everything. That's that's sort of what I have with the Google Wi-Fi. It's a mesh network. It's got a, it's got a built-in router. It expects to be connected directly directly to the internet. I just feel like that's not the right way to do it. And maybe I should just not think that. <laughs> maybe it's perfectly fine to have it directly connected to the internet. That's the kind of device that I would normally have something in between it and the internet to protect it from the world. Because it's like a common platform for for people to attack. Right? Maybe I'm just being too paranoid. Is this is this I uh... I'm not sure I know what device you're talking about. Is this basically equivalent to a Linksys uh, Wi-Fi device? Yeah, it's it's a, it's a competitor to the thing you just listed, the Orbi or whatever you called it. Oh, just connect it directly to the internet. It's fine. It's designed to be connected to the internet. Yeah, maybe I'll just leave it that way. I don't know, but um, I still have a need just, for you know, like keep it up like. To date. Well, yeah, it updates automatically. That's one of the reasons yeah. I like it. Um, it's still I still have a need to connect my home lab. Which I could probably do behind that because it does have it has a single Ethernet port as well as there's no integrated hub or anything or integrated switch, but I can certainly connect that to a switch, which is exactly what I have in place right now. So, yeah. Anyway, that's my current project. Uh, home, home networking. What am I working on? Uh, just updated updated my GitLab instance. I now have a. Uh, Enterprise Ultimate Edition. Congratulations! I host a uh, I host a, a open source project there, so they give free free licenses for that sort of stuff. Cool, just cool. Um, so I've got all sorts of new fun toys to play with. Um, still working on the shelves, just waiting for uh, the heat has to go up a little bit. 
um, before I can just start doing any of the painting. You keep saying sucks, that. But... We 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 had some warm I like days. Our... I think you're just you're just putting it off. What, what do you define as warm? Because warm day so far has been like low fifties at most. Well, that's warm enough to do what you're talking about. No, well, the of course garage... you you might you might want more than a day though. Yeah. So so the the paint and stuff is supposed to be like 60 degrees or more in order to oh, put okay. the stuff on. So, okay. Um, I've started doing the sanding, but that's about it. And I built another little shelf that doesn't require as much, uh, tender loving care as this one does for, uh, for the bar. So I can put bottles up on it. So that'll be done tomorrow. Cool. Charles, anything fun going on? Any more cool train stuff? You recently had a vacation, which was cool, right? I did have a vacation and I racked up uh, another 2,000 miles by train. So I'm feeling pretty good about that. Wow. 2,000 miles. Picked, picked up a little new mileage in the Chicago area. So that's cool. 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 Do, do, you, do you have like a, a map where you've tr like traced all of the tracks you've touched? I did back in the old, back when, Back in some pre previous iteration of Google's custom mapping service, I don't know what the hell has happened to it at this point. Okay. What I do have is a spreadsheet, so if I ever wanted to make a map, I could very easily construct where I've been in in the states anyway since two thousand and eight. Cool. Google, since Google probably canceled it. Yeah, right. They 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 retired that. <laughs> Nobody needs Google's maps. Killed, ah. Google killed more services than Thanos. There's a <laughs> there's a there's a site for that. Uh, kill, was it killedbygoogle.com or something? Yeah, it's got a bunch of stuff I vaguely remember. Yeah, I'll have to check it out sometime. Some of which I not, miss. I'll have to check it out sometime when we're not recording a live podcast. <laughs> or you know, just rabbit trail down into some other weird thing that uh, you know Iron Sisman's never known for that. <laughs> hey, we should get Danny on. Oh God. Oh, <laughs> I mean, we could have Danny, but we'll have to warn all the listeners first so that they can just not tune in that night. <laughs> or tune in because it was awesome. You know, there's, there's got to be... Our Iron Sisterman um, features Army Creole. What? <laughs> okay, so... If that's that, I suppose we can move on into the main topic. What do you think? Kind of forgot we had one, but sure, let's do that. We do. We do indeed. Remember, we were aiming for an hour. We hit an hour. So if we can finish the main topic in half an hour, we'll, we'll hit the number we were actually shooting for. <laughs> Here we go. Okay, so tonight's main topic comes uh, from the 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 same um, chap <laughs> who had given us a uh, a review on Twitter, or at least uh, some feedback on Twitter. Rob, um, he asks via Twitter, "IT automation may be a good talk, Ansible puppet, and such. What you guys have worked with and experience." So, um, yeah, I've I've dealt with a little bit of automation. Um, primarily Puppet, 
but I've also done build automation. So I figured what we would do is not, not just cover a single config management platform or a couple config management platforms, but touch on build automation, config management, and then app deployment, because we have some expertise in all three of those areas right here on the show right now. So um, quite some time ago, when uh, Red Hat released Satellite version 6, I put a bunch of effort into figuring out how to automate my builds for my rail infrastructure uh, using Pixie Boot and Kickstart and eventually Puppet. And uh, that has been such a nice thing to have. Charles, you, you can probably speak to this being my primary uh, VM customer. <laughs> that it... Uh, VM builds, and even physical builds, even though that doesn't affect you as much, but it affects me, um, they went from a thing that took me a couple hours, you know, to, to physically build a machine or, or copy a machine from a template and then get it configured. Um, mind you, we were coming from a no-config, no-automation uh, uh, scenario into a Kickstart and Pixie and Puppet. So we deployed all of those things at the same time. Uh, and that was that that improved things so much. It went from several hours to build a VM to a couple minutes of you know defining the system in in this case satellite and then turning the VM on and letting it boot and letting it uh, you know just basically configure itself. And then that went a step further because we're also using Red Hat's uh, Red Hat Red Hat virtualization. Um, there's an API that satellite can tie into, so I can literally log into satellite define my VM, you know, how much memory it should have, CPUs, disk space, uh, what host group it should live in, which tells it what puppet classes to apply to it. And then it makes it in Rev, it boots it up, and it basically, from start to finish, at the end of it, I have a VM that all I have to do is move it into the network that it's going to live in and make sure it has the accounts it needs on it so people can log in. Um, so that's that's been... A great help. Um, Charles, I don't know if you can remember the days before we had that. I know you you really came to the college around the time that I was working on or finishing that. Oh, no. The first, um, I certainly remember the first couple of VM builds where, you know, you'd hand off the build, which had taken, you know, a while. And then you know, I had a whole checklist that I went through of things I had to manually configure before it was really ready for us to use. I mean, I still have a checklist, but at this point, it's mostly just making sure that Puppet actually ran correctly and applied the classes that we expected it to apply and that the network contexts are sane. I mean, the actual QA process, and just a few things we can't automate, the actual QA process takes 15, 20 minutes tops, and a lot of it's just gut checking, looking around, you know, doing pseudo for the first time, you know, it's... Right. And it's, one of the it, I'm not expecting to find broken stuff at this point. Right. One of the one of the great things that this has given us is the ability to repeat a build. Right. So um, Charles and I have worked together to define what a web server that runs PHP is going it should look like. Right. All the things that are that don't change from machine to machine. And they've all been defined within the build environment and within puppet so that I can churn out a dozen of these things and they'll all look pretty much the same on the other end. Um, and that's been actually a really a really big uh, 
well, it's been a great tool to have to have handy. Um, Jason, I, I know you've um, at least when we last worked together, you were more on the network side, and you were more of a consumer of systems that I handed off, similar to how Charles is. Uh, but I know in in future roles or roles after that, uh, you did work as an sysadmin, um, or w- what was your title? Riot Control Systems Engineer? Is that what that was called? <laughs> Riot Riot Control Systems Commander. Systems Commander, um, and you were running on AWS, right? Yep. Did Did you yep. also so, manage physical hardware at one point? I thought you had a, a lights out data center uh, you were in at some point. I did. Too. Yeah, I did manage physical hardware at one point um, that I never saw. Um, so that was all. That was all done uh, through lights out um, to to boot machines and get them running, uh, and then we used um, uh, Catello, um, Foreman and Catello to manage them. So you were pretty so much doing the same thing I am with satellite. Catello yeah, and, and Foreman are upstream of satellite. Um, yep. So when you went to AWS, how did you build machines there? Did you did you leverage any of the the like imaging and templating and whatnot that you can use on AWS? So initially, uh, so we did a, uh, uh, we literally moved to AWS overnight. Um, so oh. it was like a, a 24 hour move. Lift and um, shift, they call that now. Yep. Yep. <laughs> uh, I call it a, cl- uh, and we're not going to say that. Um, so it was a cluster. Uh, and no, it it's the cloud. It's not a cluster. Foray. Yeah, it's cloud. Uh, f- sort of the first foray into AWS. So we did everything wrong. Um, so I managed it the exact same way. We stood up a Catello box and uh, managed, uh, booted up EC2 instances, dropped oh. a basic image on them, and then let uh, Puppet manage the to configure everything for us. So you weren't necessarily doing cloud native stuff. You were just basically doing what you did in the data center, except now you were doing on it doing it on AWS. Right, initially, um, and then further on, we started moving into using uh, cloud formation templates. Right. And we were starting to look at building uh, golden images to, so in the in the cloud native world, you build a uh, a single golden image yeah. that you use to boot off of. Yeah. Um, and it doesn't it doesn't on it doesn't really look like most people use any sort of Ansible puppet chef whatever. They just believe that the golden image remains golden after they deploy it. Interesting. Um, I, I don't see a lot of that. There's, so, there's a lot of monitoring that goes on, but nothing, nothing that I've seen so far that is is OS level where it's looking at um, ensuring that configs remain the same. When you get to the cloud, I feel like there, there's a different mindset, and the, the and the the mindset is that your system is now disposable. And instead of making sure that the config doesn't drift, you just design it in such a way that you can just nuke it and rebuild it in seconds. Correct. To the proper spec, right? Right. And that's that's sort of what the the cloud formation templates do. Right. And that's what that golden image is all about, which, by the way, is another way, whether you're in the cloud or not. Uh, it's another way to speed up your build automation. Um, I never got there myself because kickstarting is fast enough for me. But for on-prem or for cloud, you can certainly build a template or an image and base your VMs on that. Or in some cases, like in the case of OpenStack, you can even base, I believe, physical hardware on images. Uh, where it literally writes that image to disk uh, when you pixie boot a machine. Um, and that gives you... The same sort of disposability 
between hardware and VMs. Uh, so that's another way to to make your builds faster and more repe- more repeatable. And in fact, it is the suggested way to do it when you're in a cloud environment. You know, you shouldn't be fiddling with the operating system after it's built. It should be baked into your image once you've decided on what your image should look like. Right, and that's that's for that would be if you're dealing with VMs in the cloud. the The shiny new way to do it is oh, right. to use containers. So you can do the same basic thing with cloud formation templates and auto scaling groups and you know all the other AWS buzzwords, and you put all that together and use containers instead. Um, and that that way, uh, the spin up time is significantly faster than dealing with uh, booting off of a, a golden image. Right. Um, there was something I wanted to put in there, but I can't remember now. <laughs> anyway, um, oh, right, you were talking about containers being the, the new hotness, and this space is moving so quickly that not just containers is the new hotness, but literal, like, AWS native applications that leverage all of the various software-as-a-service tools like Lambda and whatever uh, are really quickly becoming the new standard when you're when you're cloudizing your applications. Um the downside of that is pre-built applications don't really run that way, right? So I can't take WordPress and run it in Lambda. That's got to run on a LAMP stack, essentially, which is great for containers. Uh, but if you're, if you're writing software, um, the way that they want you to do it nowadays is you should write it in you know, cloud-native functions like Lambda, uh, which really throws a wrench in things. Well, so realize that you have to keep in mind, lambdas are, um, I'd almost say that they're reactive. They have to be called, and they can only run for a certain period of time. So it's not like you can run right. uh, uh, so, some sort of a you know long-running process in a lambda. Um, lambdas are intended to be you know, uh, uh, API endpoints to do something. Right, right. So the way it was described to me is you have a very, very like simple templated uh, web application which doesn't have any logic in it, and it just calls Lambda functions for every bit of logic that it runs. Right, right. So, as long as those, as long as whatever function you're calling can complete in a reasonable amount of time, yeah. you know, a couple seconds at the most. And most web applications, even if it has to spawn way. other ones, yeah, yeah. Most most web applications are designed to work that right. way. You know, you when you render yep. a page, it's just like while the page is loading, ta-da, there you go. Right, right, right. And then you fall into the mindset that a lot of people <laughs> forget, in that um, you know, not everything is a website. Exactly, so. exactly. So um, we're, we're pretty quickly moving past build automation and moving into cloud, and I want to kind of get us back on track. So the next thing that, so the next sort of level of life cycle is config management. Um, obviously, that's not uh, relevant when you're talking about software as a service or um, Lambda um, or even containers to, to any real extent. Uh, config management is more of a tool used on full-on heavy VMs. It's funny that I'm calling VMs heavy nowadays. Um, but uh, personally, I use Puppet, and I have some experience with Ansible. I've only recently started using Ansible to do things. Um, the way I, I still see Ansible as a different tool than Puppet. Puppet enforces state, and Ansible carries out tasks, right? So yes, um, I've long... 
hoped that I could replace Puppet with Ansible, and the more I use Ansible, the more I think that that's not really the state that I'm going to end up in. I think Puppet is going to have certain tasks that will remain in Puppet. Uh, things like config management, things like maintaining state, and Ansible will be used for one-off tasks or for things that have to happen amongst the entire fleet. Um, and that's, I think, I just picture that as where it's going. Now, I haven't used Ansible Tower yet. I don't know if anybody, I don't know if, if Jason, if you have, I know, Charles, you probably haven't. You might not even know what Ansible no, Tower is. I haven't heard of it. But um, Ansible Tower is basically, to, it's it's like foreman for Ansible. Right, it's like, it's like akin to a puppet master. Although right. my understanding is that, and you might you you should know more about this since you're plugged into Red Hat. My understanding is that um, Satellite and subsequently Foreman is supposed to get Ansible support. The last I heard was with Satellite six point four. I'm on six point three, so I don't know yet. Um, I have been meaning to. So basically, I'm I'm in the midst of a six three upgrade. It's almost done. Then I'm gonna start researching six four and get us to six four. Uh, so once I do that, if I find out that Ansible is better integrated, I will report back. But um, yeah, the last time I asked somebody at Red Hat about it, which was like a year and a half ago at this point, 6.2 was the latest release. 6.3 was like coming out soon. And they're like, 6.3 will have some Ansible support. 6.4 should have full integration with Ansible. I don't know if it panned out or not. Um, so yeah. <coughs> Excuse me. So uh, Puppet... We got into the Puppet game a little bit late. Uh, we use Puppet 3, because that's what Red Hat was supporting at the time on Satellite. Um, part of my 6.3 upgrade is to get us to Puppet 4, and then the 6.4 upgrade will get us to Puppet 5. So there's going to be a quick succession of you know Puppet upgrades in the middle there. But So uh, most of my experience currently is with Puppet 3, uh, which I don't know that it really changes between 4 and 5. So, Puppet, there was a bit of a learning curve. It's a simple enough language, but there is definitely, it's very Ruby-esque, because Puppet is written in Ruby. Uh, and that, in my opinion, is one of Puppet's downfalls. The fact that it requires an agent, it requires um, Ruby to run that agent, because the agent is all written in Ruby. And it, it's, in our experience, has given us one major problem. And that problem is that when your config management tool is managing your system, there's nothing to manage the config management agent. Like, the Puppet agent can't make sure the Puppet agent is running. Because the Puppet agent can't check itself when it dies. Right. And we've, so we've run into the monitor, I guess, for... Well, yeah, and monitoring in this case is... Um... We have a, you know, we have the syslogs in Splunk, and I've got a report that's based. This is it's some convoluted logic of transactions, yeah. but it's like, hey, Splunk. So, um, has it been at least twelve hours since a catalog run finished on a particular system? <laughs> if so, let us know about it in the morning so we go look at it to see if Puppet's broken. Yeah. So. Um, I know, Jason, you're probably like, why don't you just monitor for the process? Well, in this case, it's not that the process has died. It's that it's hung. And that, that's happened to us entirely too frequently. And I don't know if it's a Puppet 3 problem. I don't know if it's a problem the way we're using Puppet. I don't know if it's a problem with how often we have it running or if it's a problem with satellite. Like, there's all kinds of variables here. 
You guys are on Puppet 3 still? Yes. Did, did you sorry. miss all that? <laughs> I, I, I guess I missed what version of Puppet you're on. So uh, just, just as a point, um, Puppet's not written in Ruby anymore. Oh, have they have they moved to something else? What is it now? Yeah, so so from 4.0 on, they they rewrote it in C++ and Clojure. Oh, Cl- good. Clojure. Good. Mm. So, yeah, um, as I mentioned just five minutes ago, um, we're on Puppet 3 because Satellite 6.2 runs Puppet 3. So 6.3 brings Puppet 4, and 6.4 brings Puppet 5. So we'll be moving okay, as we move. That's where I'm confused because I ran Catello and I've had Puppet Four for a long time. Right. Right. So that that's it. Just I I, I must have missed that part. Yeah. Okay. So I mean a, a satellite now. a satellite upgrade is always kind of a huge undertaking because of the build automation. Um, every time I do a satellite upgrade, my build automation breaks and then I have to spend time fixing it. So I usually wait until I know I'm going to have time to fix it, which is few and far between in the role that I play at the college. So. Um, so yeah, I've I've been working on getting us to six point three. Uh, I've already worked through fixing my build environment. <laughs> um, six point four will come. So basically, I'm as far as getting to the point where satellite is up to date. Now I need to get us to Puppet four, uh, which is the next thing on my to do list. And I haven't even looked at what the migration or upgrade looks like yet. So anyway, um, the the reason I said there's a in my mind, uh, a, a big difference between Puppet and Ansible. Ansible is like an entirely different tool. Obviously, it's an entirely different tool. It's an entirely different um, architecture, right? So Puppet has an agent that checks in with the master every so often. It says, what config should I enforce? And it enforces it, right? If the agent dies, then you it's not checking in anymore. If the agent hangs, it's not checking in anymore. Ansible is the opposite. Ansible is a push instead of a pull. So Puppet is more pull, it checks in, it pulls down config. Ansible will use Python and SSH, which, you know, find me a Linux box that doesn't use Python anyway. So that's that's good. It means that all the libraries that you need are, are either there or available already. And it's cross-platform for the client. So I run Ansible, the client, from my MacBook without a problem. Um... But it's push, right? So you define a task in Ansible, and then you say, okay, Ansible, run this task, or okay, Ansible, run this playbook. And it SSHs into all the machines that you're trying to uh, you know, set this state on or make this config change on, does the change using you know, something like a very advanced expect script, <laughs> from what I can tell, uh, interacts with Python and whatnot to make all that stuff happen, and then uh, it gives you a nice report at the end as to which ones it worked on, which ones it succeeded on, which ones it failed on, all that kind of stuff. Um, so, yeah, I've I've only got a little bit of a little bit of experience with uh, Ansible at this point. I used it as part of my satellite upgrade because the satellite tools package had to get upgraded on all of my machines. So I got a list of hosts together and I wrote up an Ansible playbook to make that happen, which was, I mean, it was a great introduction to dealing with Ansible. And it was really helpful. It got everything done for me. So, uh, Jason, did have did, did you work with Ansible at all? I, I think yeah. you said you were. Yeah, I was working with Ansible a bit. Um, I, I think I prefer... So, it, it's a different security model. So, with, with right. Puppet, you have the agent that runs on the server, or on the uh, clients, and has to check in with the server, which means that all the clients have to be able to get to the server, wherever it is. Right. And Ansible flips that on its head, where the server connects to the clients. Um, 
And I, I prefer that model only because in, in my world, um, protecting that, that config management server is, is one of the most important tasks out there. And so for it to be able to get to all the servers is not a big deal. Right. Versus, versus, you know, where my, you know, my, uh, my edge servers that are running, you know, my Nginx proxies have access to be able to call all the way back to my config management server so that Puppet can, can check in. I'm not a, I'm not a huge fan of that. Right. But so in an environment where, so in our case, our Nginx proxies are configured via Puppet. So right. in that environment, either I'd have to rewrite all of that in Ansible and then have something that would run periodically to make sure it's enforced on the Nginx proxies, or I have to stick with Puppet. Like, I don't know if there's an in-between there. Right, right. I mean, I, there's, I imagine there's a way to do pu uh, Puppet proxies and, and secure things a little bit differently. Yeah. Um, I, I, it's probably there. I, so I in the in the case of Catello and Foreman and Satellite, uh, there's a thing called a Foreman proxy or a Satellite capsule uh, that are essentially that you can put you can put these systems that are they can they're able to check in with your master and they're also able to host Puppet right so then you can have it like say in a remote office or. Uh, in a secondary location or in a protected network, you know, whatever your use case is. And then your machines check that, and then that checks your satellite or that checks your form and master. Um, so, yeah, that's that that could be a way to, to handle that sort of thing. They're essentially s like satellite puppet masters, right? Uh, you could you could use Ansible to push your puppet config to the local machine and then let puppet configure it from there. Use Ansible to push your... Wow. <laughs> Good idea, good idea. So yeah, uh, puppet puppet runs constantly and keeps the state, and and Ansible is the one that's you've got the security of 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 outward, uh, uh, higher security level, the lower security level. Right. So, um, yeah, I don't know. We we could we could talk all night about Ansible and Puppet, I suppose, but um, we can also move on to app deployment, which is really Charles's thing. I see him light up and come over. Closer to them. <laughs> Yay! It's my turn to talk. <laughs> oh, and I feel like I've talked about app deployment a couple of times, particularly, I mean, first time when I just came on as a guest to talk about how we managed WordPress. Yeah, right. Um, and we're, there's a lot I could say about that. Um, so we're primarily using Capistrano for app deployment in conjunction with GitLab CI actual deployment there's a couple things going on there and we might be moving off of capistrano to something very similar called deployer which is basically capistrano but implemented in php um there's reasons for that but i mean if you have php anyway right <laughs> it's not even because of that it's mainly because there's a feature that's implemented well part of it is a feature that's implemented that we want that's in deployer but not capistrano and also Capistrano is written in Ruby and we are not Ruby developers. Right. That's just not what the shop's expertise is. But with Capistrano, we're able to define what the deployed state of the application looks like within 
limits. We can say it's on these servers, it's deployed to this place. Um, with, uh, you know, these are, these are where the config files are, but the thing is we're not actually, we can't manage the state of the config files, which is kind of a limitation. And I'd had some ideas that Puppet might've been able to help with that. Like, you know, with WordPress, when you have a WP config file, there's a lot of crap in there. Yeah. You know, database credentials, um, salts, nonces, uh, application password, application configuration, which should be consistent across all the different nodes that we deploy to, but we're still managing it um, by hand, which is not great. We played with that a little bit with our MediaWiki deployments by putting essentially all the config that wasn't privileged in some way. We actually started managing inversion control, and then there's just a secrets file that's still managed on bare metal, but it's a lot smaller. Just, you know, anything, you know, anything that shouldn't be in Git. Right. And that worked out. That's, that's been working out fairly well. Um, the, um, the CI piece is just having GitLab run the, because, you know, Capistrano, you can run that deployment from your local environment. It's like, it's very much like Ansible in that regard. Right. Um, cause it's just kicking off a bunch of SSH commands in parallel, um, having GitLab run those deployments instead takes, you know, your local machine out of the equation as a single point of failure and gives you a repeatable deployment, you know, with tests and QA and all that good stuff. And everybody can see, all right, here's the deployment. Here's where we did a build. Here's where we validated the build. Here's where we deployed the build rinse, wash, and repeat constantly. Not that we're actually pushing constantly because we're not that kind of shop, but we could. Right. All right, so um, automating app deployment, I mean, really, it gives you the same sort of benefits that automating build, automating builds and config management get you, which is repeatability, right? Yeah, repeatability and being able to state with a very high degree of confidence, this is the code that's deployed. Right. We we pushed this commit. This is what the build looked like. Here's the artifact. And here's what's, this is what's actually out on the server. And if for some reason, somehow it got damaged or corrupted, we will just rerun the deployment and everything goes back to the way it's supposed to be. That's handy. That's handy. And there are, I've heard stories at least, of uh, shops that are fully DevOpsified that uh, their entire stack can be deployed in a similar way where, you know, everything can be redeployed easily, quickly, and you, you can always get it back to a known state by simply clicking a few buttons or, you know, initiating a rebuild or whatever. Um, yeah. Which is really, um, a lot of what we talked about tonight is sort of you know, either part of that or earlier versions of that, right? So I don't have all of my stuff containerized, for example, uh, but if I did, you could easily rebuild an application by redeploying its container, right? Um, I don't have everything that we... We don't have every single little thing that we have to touch puppetized, uh, but we could. And if we did, then you could... Your app deployment could turn into uh, an even more automatable um, procedure, right? So just what you what you were just talking just talking about with that WP config file, right? 
or even mm-hmm. just the config of Apache, right? You're, you're still doing that by hand, as I remember correctly, right? Or you have that automated somehow now? No, it's it's well documented. Yeah, it's one of those things where the Apache config could absolutely at this point, well, there's also really no reason for us to be running Apache at this point, but that's a different matter. Right. But um, it could absolutely be automated at this point. It's just one of those things where we, we're still using VMs. We don't build new VMs particularly often. So right. it's like there's no the XKCD rules in effect. There's no reason for us to automate it. It's not worth the effort. We don't change it very often. Now, when we went through that process a couple of years ago when we updated and improved all the ciphers, that's yeah. a time when I would have really loved to have had that automated because yep. of what a pain in the ass that was. But it's, that's come, that's, and that's gone, and that and that part is managed by Puppet at this point, so yeah. it doesn't matter. Right, so that that is the sort of thing where we could be periodically tweaking what ciphers we offer just because mm-hmm. that is a changing landscape, Right. That's a, perfect, that's a perfect example of something that should be in config management. Um, mm-hmm. Just just earlier this week, um, I had to reconfigure all of our fleet to relay through a system other than our on-premise uh, email system because we're in the process of, well, we've already switched to Gmail, right? So our on-prem uh, email solution is going to go away. I can't have servers relaying through it anymore. So I configured all that with Puppet. Um and I was able to deploy that to, you know, a hundred or a hundred and a half uh, systems in, you know, two hours, right? Um, so that's that's not nothing, right? Like, that's that's mm-hmm. valuable. That is very valuable. I can remember the days where I would be logging into 200 systems manually to make that change. And sure, I'd probably have, like, worked up some sort of copy-paste shell script or something that I could log into a system, right-click, paste, make sure that it worked, log out, log into the next system. But that's nowhere near just, I defined a Puppet class, I assigned it to all of my production servers, I waited an hour, and Puppet did its thing and deployed it. Right? So, Mm -hmm. this really gets you to a state, uh, if you can automate it, automate all of it, it gets you to a state where your infrastructure becomes replaceable, easily replaceable. Um, when we built our Nginx proxies, I made it a point to put every single thing that I had to touch in a Puppet class. You know, when we built it in our test environment, I did stuff manually. And as I did it manually, I learned how to do it in Puppet. And then when I built our production environment, I kickstarted a server. I assigned the Puppet classes to it, and it built me some Nginx servers. I didn't touch a single thing by hand on that, except private data like the SSL key files. And that means that if something horrible were to befall one of our Nginx servers, I can kick out a new one, apply the Puppet classes to it, and there it is, done. Right? So yeah. that's that's powerful. That That's, that's a really handy thing to have. And, um, and there's still more we can do. We can do a lot more to to further automate our our build config and application deployment. Uh, but to your point, what's it worth, right? And I think that's a very important consideration. Like all the automate all the automation that we've built to this point, we didn't 
do it just because it was cool or because it would be fun. I mean, certainly it was cool and it was fun, but, but it we was built useful. It to solve, well, we built it to solve a very specific problem. A lot, you know, it came out of the, um, we had a continuous integration research project and some of the stuff we implemented because there was no reasonable way to have a multi-node environment if we didn't have this capability. It, you, we couldn't be, we needed a way to do parallel builds and to do repeatable builds if we right. were going to have this kind of capability so we had to have it i mean like it wasn't just because it was cool it was essential you and i have been through i think two iterations now of, of the web platform you know uh we, it's probably more like three if three we're honest. three iterations technically there was the there was the iteration we were on when you and i started working on it and then we went to the next iteration we which is where two, right we which is where three. we standardized you know we made mm -hmm. sure that things were built in a standard way and that's when the build automation and Puppet and a few other things came into play. Um, and then when we pretty quickly moved into the next, I guess there were two more iterations after this because there was one, there was a whole new generation and then there was like a tweak to that generation. Yeah, right now we're on what I'm calling Gen 3.5. Right. So we've essentially rebuilt our entire web infrastructure several times at this point. The first time was pretty painful because... We learned a lot. Nothing was automated. Nothing was standardized. And we put a lot of work into standardizing and automating as much as we could. When we got to Generation 3, it was, okay, we're tweaking a few things. We're we're going from RHEL 6 to 7, I think, is is, is what we did on mm -hmm. Gen 3. Um, Which was a pretty big deal because right. that's those, those, web, those are the web servers that are really managed by Puppet. Right. So the neat thing is then with 3.5, what we're calling it, we're able to iterate in place. We can use Puppet to make pretty significant config changes that are relatively seamless. Right. Where we and might have previously had to kick out new servers and do a state migration, which admittedly would be faster now. Which we're like, nope, we're just upgrading and improving in place. And not just that, but we went from single-headed web servers to multi-headed web servers. Mm -hmm. So we basically now build in triplicate every single web server that we would have previously built a single server for. And in that scenario, automation is key. Because to build three of the same thing, to run the same application, they got to be pretty damn close to, to perfect. They have to match, and you don't want to have to be making a change manually in three places. Right. Right. Not just that, but it would take it would literally take me a day to kick out three of the same web server for you if I was doing it manually. Because it's just, you know, a, a bunch of repetition of the same thing. And to have somebody somebody with my experience and skill set sitting around building web servers all day is a complete waste of resource. Automating that just solves that problem. Not to speak too highly of myself, but <laughs> you get the point. You get the point. Anyone you're paying for their expertise, you don't want them sitting around doing menial, repetitious tasks, right? Besides that, they'd burn out pretty quick, too. They would burn out pretty quick and move on to some place that has, you know, cooler and fancier stuff. All right, so I think that pretty much covers it. Did you have any final thoughts, either of you, that uh, that builds on this? No? <laughs> I suppose not. 
All right, so then I think we uh, we may as well call it a night for tonight then. That was, I think, a pretty good discussion about automation and build <clears throat> and app deployment. Um, we could certainly touch more deeply on things like cloud architectures and whatnot, but uh, to be honest, I don't know that I have the expertise for that. Um, we may move into that at some point, but uh, maybe we could I'd have... I'd be speculating. So yeah, no. maybe we could have somebody on the show who's more uh, cloud native. I don't know. Um <laughs> So, yeah, that's that. Uh, I think we're going to call it at that. So, folks, thank you for tuning in. Those of you who have uh, have, have uh, watched us live, we got a, a pretty active chat tonight, uh, which I think is where Jason has been for most of this conversation. <laughs> going back and forth, that's handy. Maybe there's going to be a point where we're going to have to have somebody that just moderates our chat for us. Wouldn't that be an interesting step forward? <laughs> Let's make Dustin do it. Let's make Dustin do it. But he never shows up. Where's he tonight? He's he, got he's got a baby and uh, you know yeah, but he I mean, doesn't sleep tonight. And, tonight he didn't even say he wouldn't be. Maybe he's asleep. <laughs> uh, I don't know. He's probably busy. Um, probably busy. He's, he's <laughs> hammered lately. So no, believe me, I I get it. I get it. We have we have two kids that are past the uh, very bothersome newborn stage. <laughs> so I've been through that twice, and I get it. It's it's a lot of work. It's a lot of stress on you. It's a, it's a lot of tired. So, um, yeah, I think, as I've said before, he gets a pass until his kid gets a little older. Although he's got to be almost a year by now, right? Or is he two? No. Like a year? No. Uh, nine months, I believe. Oh, really? Okay. Soon. Soon he'll be at the point where the kid is terrorizing him, but maybe sleeping through the night. <laughs> at nine months, is he still not sleeping through the night? I believe he's, uh, it's hit or miss. I think, uh, I think he's teething now. Yeah, that's no fun. No, our, not really. Our kids, I think, so our, our oldest, maybe it was partially due to our inexperience, maybe it was partially her, I don't know, but uh, we had lots of trouble getting her to sleep at night. And even that, she was sleeping through the night, sleeping through the night by six months. Our youngest, I mean, I think she was a month old. She's sleeping through the night. It scared us the first time she slept through the night. So like, aren't you supposed to wake up? <laughs> aren't you supposed to bother us in the middle of the night? What's up with this? <laughs> anyway. All right. So, yeah, as I was saying, thank you, folks, for tuning in live. Uh, thank you, those of you who are listening to us after the fact via your uh, pod-catching apps. Um, if you would like to join our Slack team to give us feedback directly or chat with the hosts or whatever, you can go to ironsysamin.com forward slash Slack. If you want to watch us live on the second and fourth Wednesdays of every month, roughly, unless we have more important things to do, uh, you can go to I go to you. Ah, we have a our own custom URL now, youtube.com slash podcast. Uh, you can hit the subscribe and that little notification bell. You'll know when we go live. Because although tonight we went live almost on time, usually we're a little late. Iron Sysadmin standard time. Uh, Facebook and Twitter, you can find us, Iron Sysadmin. Just give us a search on Facebook or twitter.com forward slash Iron Sysadmin. And as I mentioned before, if you would like to support the podcast uh, monetarily, you can do so, patreon.com slash Iron Sysadmin. And with that, I think I'm done talking for tonight. You guys have any final words? Sure. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Xenophage. Uh, there's no Q in that. There's uh, no Q. And on my blog at blog.godshell.com. But is there a Z? No. There's no Z.
no Z either, even though it sounds that way. Yeah, it's magic. All right. And Charles? You can find me on Twitter at M-A-C-K-E-N-S-E-N, where I'm mostly talking about trains and football and occasionally web development and other matters. Indeed. And you can find me on Twitter, even though I'm hit or miss as to how active I am on Twitter. Usually, I'm just trolling Jason when I'm on Twitter. Yep, that he is. <laughs> all right, everybody. Thanks for listening and have a good night. Night, all. Hello, McData. I had that thought as I was reading it. Hello, <laughs> McData. Scully Barrel number 36. Sour ale brewed with coconut aged in oak wine barrels. You said two things I don't like. Sour ale and coconut. This is so good. Yeah? Yeah, it's really good. Uh, Paradox. I would, I would probably get destroyed at the coconut. Two minutes late. Kinda. Two minutes late. Two minutes is close enough to on time on Iron Sysadmin Standard Time. Iron Sysadmin Standard Time. Yeah. It's like daylight savings time, except without the stupid time shift, we're just late all the time. <laughs>